Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, your tenderness with Peter touches the heart. And Lord, we know that our hearts often need to be touched by you, to be healed by you, especially in the places of deepest wounding. Lord, I, I pray that this morning that you would bring a ministry to the deepest woundings of our hearts, that we would be restored to our true selves, we'd be restored to being a true witness in the life that you've called us to live, to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, in light of Christ, we have a mission statement, as a lot of churches do. And so for those of you who are uh, regulars, you've heard me say it a bunch of times, light of Christ, uh, we believe our mission is to reflect the light of Christ's love, his hope, and his healing. We have a very specific understanding of healing, which is a lot of, in a sense, what we'll be talking about today. And it's this idea that we're not only restored to like baseline health, if you will, um, but we're like given an impartation of such life and such love and such wholeness of life that we produce fruit. It's like a, it's a picture of glory as it's meant to be lived out in the life of every human being in the light of Christ. That's healing. It's a profound thing, but we often need it most of all and resist it most of all in the places of our greatest fears in the places of our greatest troubling within our own souls. These things come up often when we're facing our greatest tests, as it did for Peter. Um, I think what we have here today is, a, is such a profound healing with Peter. In some ways, I, I think it's the beginning of a restoration of what, what Peter's real life is supposed to be like, something that he's known for a while because Christ actually called it out for him. I mean, he named him Peter, like, you're going to be the rock. And Peter had failed miserably, three times denying the Lord. And uh, the Lord is restoring him to that, but with a new resource. It's not founded in his own determinations. It's founded in the Lord's determinations. So Peter's in this really tough place. Um, I think he's confused. I think he's probably horrified. I think the last time that I preached on this was actually not that long ago. I think uh, it was... Um, one of the things that I mentioned that just all of a sudden came back to mind is that the greatest traumas of our life often are not the things that have been done to us. It's actually the horrors of what we've done and found ourselves to have done towards others or the horror of not having done something that we knew we were supposed to do on behalf of another. It can be so disturbing. Well, we call this, we call this a... Uh, an existential crisis. I don't know if you guys have heard of that. It's kind of like an identity crisis, right? An existential crisis is when you feel like your existence is so out of line with what you thought it was supposed to be that it's devastating. That's an existential crisis. Um, I, I uh, have a, a memory of a professor. So my, my first philosophy professor, his name was Stephen Evans. And he talked a little bit about existential crises. When he was in college, he, uh, he said that he had this existential crisis. He would wake up in the middle of the night wondering if he existed. <laughs> and he would be sweating. 
<laughs> and I thought, man, that's different. That's a pretty serious existential crisis. He also sometimes thought maybe, well, is this all real? Or am I like hooked up to some wires, sort of like a matrix type thing, and some mad scientist is just kind of using his finger to stir up my brain and convince me that this is all real when it's not. And that was his particular very unique existential crisis. But I don't think that most of us have, you know, something like that. I think it's, it's a little bit more basic, isn't it? It's, but it is painful when it occurs. It's like that deep sense of who you really are. All of us, I think, in one way, shape, or form, because we're made by God, and he's made us to bear a light in the world. One of the great Hebrew sayings is, is that the, um, the, the soul of man is the candle of God. We're meant to be creatures of light. And we all have a sense of how we maybe should be doing that, but so often we're not. And that's a, that's a disturbing experience. I think the other thing that we might say about this is that, I mean, sin is really an enactment of a lie, right? It's actually living out a false belief. And when we're talking about the kind of false belief or lie or sin of today in this passage about Peter, we're talking about a fundamental lie about who he is, about who Jesus is, about who he is in relationship to Jesus. And so there's this incredible wrenching experience of the difference between where he's been and where he really knows himself to be and should be. And that is Peter's grievous wound this difference between the lies about himself that he's enacted and the truth of who he is in Christ. In some ways, I think we're seeing with Peter that the Lord is taking him through a very deep song of being. He's speaking deeply, like from the deeps to the deep, right? As the psalmist says to Peter, to bring him from a place of grief and to a place of joy. Um, one of the ways that I think this maybe comes up in just a, more of a down-to-earth sense is some of the lies that we believe about, for instance, our identity as rooted in sexuality. So one of the things that Tim Keller, who's a famous pastor, and I think Steve, you may have referred to this not too long ago, has said about college students who go away. They've been following the Lord all throughout high school, been really connected to God, and then they'd show up back after a few semesters in college, and he'd ask them, so how are you doing? How's your walk with the Lord? And they would say things like, well, I'm just not really, I'm not really feeling it. I'm not really, you know, I'm not really sure. It's almost like they've lost the sense of God. And eventually he figured out, well, one thing I should ask them is, so, you know, tell me about your, your life. Like, tell me about, are you, uh, you know, doing things in college with other people that maybe you shouldn't? And sure enough, that was the case. And what happens is when we don't live according to the truth of who we are and the, the reality of how God's made us and named us, with regard to like holy boundaries, like I am I, you are you, that's a holy boundary. And I am called to live in a way of truth that will lead to an ongoing connection to God, an ongoing expression of him in the world, which is my light. It's my light of his light. And when that falls apart, we end up in a crisis. It's a crisis of faith. And Jesus, I think, this morning in the passage with Peter, he's showing us how he restores us to really who we are, 
how we regain our sense of purpose, how we regain our sense of self, our true self, and how we regain a sense of calling. That's really what he's doing here. It's one of the deepest healings that anyone can go through. Um, it's the office of reconciliation. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but if you've grown up in a sacramental church, one of the things that you might see posted in the bulletins or even on signs around the church is that office of reconciliation available Fridays at 9 a.m. And you can go and you can meet with a priest and you can talk about these things that have disturbed your soul, that have taken you away from true center, taking you away from purpose in life, meaning in life. And those sins that are heavy on your conscience, the things that are actually blocking your vision of God, those are supposed to be ministered to in an office of reconciliation. It's when you return back to the light source, which is Jesus, and that pastor, that priest ministers it to you in such a way that you can once again confess it as true for you. Not just an abstract truth, like yes, I know he's God out there, but he is my God. And that's what really Office of Reconciliation is supposed to be. It's really supposed to restore you to the meaningful, purposeful, fruitful life. It's a renewing of that relationship that results in fruit, a relationship with Jesus at the depths but in order to do this, masks have to be removed. I mean, it has to be a real encounter. And that's the whole point of what Jesus is doing with Peter. I mean, Jesus comes to him, but there's layers that have to be removed in a way. And Jesus in his tenderness and his gentleness makes it possible, makes it easy in a sense for Peter to have this ministry at the depths of who he is so that he can return to the Lord. What I see happening here is it's like, you've got this apostle, who, and I would call him before this ministry, he's kind of like the afflicted apostle who's sort of given up. And then he becomes an ardent apostle. I don't know how many times you've thought about the difference between Peter, the one who denies to a slave girl standing over a charcoal fire, and the Peter of Pentecost, and how powerful he's willing to be and how courageous he's willing to be in that context. In the, in the midst of the very people who nailed the Lord to the cross, the, fa the same authorities that he was once afraid of. So how does this happen? I want to just kind of unpack it, and then I hope that from understanding how the Lord works this out in Peter's life, that we'll understand a little bit more about what the Office of Reconciliation, this ministry of confession, and restoration, and also recommissioning, like being charged once again with what your life's supposed to be about. I want to see if we can trace the steps that the Lord takes Peter through so that maybe we can follow him. So the first thing um, that a lot of what happens in the beginning, if you think about it, is the Lord's provision for Peter. I mean, Peter doesn't make this happen. In fact, Peter's not really working out of a response to the Lord at all. He's just decided to go fishing. He's returned to his old family business. I think it must be, you know, um, it must be like John and Sons fishing business, right? I think Jesus is almost making a point out of that. But what's the first thing that happens here? Well, they're out. They've been all night long fishing, have got nothing to show for their efforts. And they are uh, close enough to the shore that when Jesus is on the shore, having prepared breakfast, he uh, cries out to them and says, you know, young men, have you caught anything? And it, it's kind of funny because um, it sounds a little bit taunting. 
He's pointing out the fact that they're young men. So they're in the prime of their strength. So you'd think, yeah, these young, hardy fishermen, they're going to produce something if they work hard enough. It's almost like he's saying, you know, you've, you're out there in your own strength, your own sufficiency. Have you got anything for that? And the truth is, no. They're operating in their own strength all night long and nothing. But what happens, first of all, is that John recognizes the voice of the Lord, recognizes the voice of the, the real shepherd. And he says, it's the Lord. And um, Peter at this point is at least is humble enough to realize that John actually knows what he's talking about. Um, John has that special close relationship, having leaned against the Lord's breast and heard that word even of like warning of who's going to betray the Lord. He's got a special relationship with the Lord. And Peter recognizes that. And that's the first provision here is that sometimes we just need a little bit of a prompting from somebody who's, who actually is connected to the Lord. And so that's part of the responsibility all of us have for one another, right? Is to speak that word of the Lord is still here. He is here. He's still speaking. He's here. He's for you. And that's what John does. And Peter then responds to that. It doesn't matter. It could be a very little thing. Like the thinnest little whisper of a reminder that it's the Lord. His presence and guidance is still here. That's all that was necessary to begin to move Peter. And that's what happens then, is that Peter moves on the basis of that reminder. I'm actually hoping that for some of you, this sermon will be a reminder, just a little bit of a reminder, that the Lord is here and he wants to know you. He wants you to know that he knows you and to have you enjoy that experience of knowing him and being known, that relational joy. And Peter moves on the basis of just a little bit of a reminder. He does it physically. He jumps out of the boat, puts on his clothes, jumps out of the boat and swims to shore and he receives this meal that he's not prepared. Everything's provided for. The Lord had called out from the shore. John recognizes the voice, so, and then he prepares a meal. And everything is prompted and provided for, first of all, by Jesus. And what John would call this is, this is Christ's first love. It's the first love of the outpouring of Jesus' love, his gift of himself. I want us to think, too, a little bit about the meal. There's a lot of senses in which it's actually a communion of, of bread. It, it evokes the same um, feeding of the 500, or the 5,000, rather, way more than 500. And it evokes that. And uh, the Lord is providing everything. And the only thing that um, Peter needed to do is just make a, a little bit of a move towards it. And as you move towards Jesus, then he starts to do more work in you as you continue to move forward and closer and closer to him. Well, what's, what's Jesus dealing with here? I think the way that I want to describe it, it's almost, I think it comes across in the imagery of how John describes Peter in the boat. He's actually working his family business naked, right? He's not clothed. And the text points that out. And in some ways, what I, I, I think is that, you know, if Peter's been told by the Lord, you're not, you're not a fisherman, you're a fisher of men. And what Peter has done is he's reduced himself back to a lower understanding. It's not that fishing is a bad business. Jesus never says that, but he knows what Peter's call is. He knows what your call is. 
A lot of times I think in life, right, when we live life apart from the Lord, there's a certain shape to it that's actually true. But when it's applied in ways that are lesser than what he would have you do in relation to him, then it's half living. Um, I, I could call this the nothing butness of Peter's life or the nothing but nakedness of Peter's life. Ooh, that was bad. But that's the, that's the reality is that a lot of times we live our lives clothed not in the Lord's naming of us, not in the gracious naming of our Lord that is true, but in our own perceptions. And it's really the same as being stuck naked in our shame, having determined for ourselves how we're going to live our lives. And the beginning of Peter's reclothing, if you will, is when in faith he jumps into the water and just moves towards Jesus. So this is what the Lord's dealing with. I think it's what he's dealing with all of us, is how are we defining ourselves? Are we defining ourselves according to our own lights or according to his? Are we giving ourselves a profession that is of this world only? Or are we letting him give us a profession that can speak of him? And that means like, you know, if you are called to say, for instance, being a doctor, that you do it not just strictly in the light of science, but you do it understanding that you're there to bear witness to Jesus even in those acts. And so G Jesus has called Peter. Peter's responding. He's moving back towards him. And the beginning of being reclothed in the true calling of his life is to just show up in Jesus' presence. Well, Jesus continues to remove the masks of Peter because he's trying to get down to the base level of Peter's wounding, which is the wounding of his identity. Peter has returned to this idea that he's simply son of John and he's simply about the family business and Jesus wants to point out you're much more than that. And one of the questions that he asks him right away, just, it's, I, in some ways it's an odd question and probably it seems a little weird too that the way Jesus is asking it. Do you, do you love me more than these, Simon, son of John? Do you love me more than these? It's not easy to tell exactly. In fact, a lot of scholars are trying to figure out, like, more than what? Is he talking about these other disciples who are now pulling in the, sh in the catch, starting to bring it closer to shore? Or is it, do you love me more than these? Like, all the accoutrements of your family business, Simon, son of John. I'm not sure. And the scholars aren't actually sure. And, and so that means to me that, that maybe it doesn't matter. I mean, there's evidence in the synoptic gospels that when Jesus is going, about to go to the cross, Peter is the, at least the first one to say, and then the other disciples kind of follow him, even if everybody else abandons you, I will not. I will, I will fight to the death, if you will. And in some ways he tries to do that. He chops off that servant's ear, remember? But even if everybody else abandons you, I'm not. There's this protestation of like, I know who I am. You told me who I am. I'm the rock. I will be the rock. I'm going to be the rock. Bluster. And it's almost implied like, well, maybe he thinks he does love Jesus more than these. Maybe that's what Jesus is getting at. Um, or it's just the fact that he, of his own initiative, he just starts to go fishing again. And he's leading all these disciples. Perhaps they're even in his employment in the family business. And he's in charge, but it's, it's a defining down of that in chargeness. 
a defining down of like the shepherd call that he's actually supposed to have as the chief under shepherd, Peter, the guy who leads after Jesus. And, you know, maybe he's just obsessed with the leading part of it. Do you love me more than these? I mean, either way, the, the issue is that Peter's thinking is at the wrong level. And the way that he understands himself is not in relationship to Jesus primarily, not in relationship to his words primarily about who Peter is. He's in relationship to his own thoughts about it. Like, I've always been in the family business. That's who I am. Or, you know, in relationship to these other people, I'm still, you know, more loyal than they are. Um, but the, the root issue is that he's there. I mean, he's there monitoring. He's there self Confirming, self-deciding. One of the things that you realize, if you look at Peter's denials, which Jesus predicted, and then Peter, to his horror, does it. This comes right after Jesus is in the garden, and the guards come from the temple authorities, and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am and he pronounces it in such a powerful vocalization that people are blown down on their heels. They're on the ground because he's saying, I am. Remember, that's the way that God identified himself in the Old Testament to Moses. This is the way the Hebrews understood God as the source of all being, the root of all being, the root of all knowledge and understanding, I am. He's revealing himself in the midst of the conflict that's just getting started. I am is shining his light in the dark garden. Well, right after that, Peter's in the dark. He's gathered around a fireplace, a charcoal with a servant girl and some other servants, and he consistently says, I am not. When he's asked, are you Jesus' disciple? You see, he's undoing his own being. So what happens when we don't understand ourselves in relationship to Jesus primarily, it's the same as saying, I am not. There's less and less being in you, less and less reality to who you actually are, less and less fruit, less and less wisdom. You can work all night and get nothing, even in the strength of your youth. And Jesus is creating a context here now, an encounter, a grace-filled, grace-filled, holy encounter for, for the man who had not confessed that he was Christ's disciple to begin to renew that. This great picture in the Old Testament from Isaiah. Isaiah comes into the holy of holies, uh, I'm sorry, into, into the holy place in the real temple in the heavens after which the earthly temple was patterned. This great prophet of old comes into the presence of God and he realizes he's a man of unclean lips. He's not told the truth somehow with his life. And what happens is the charcoal's taken off the fire by an angel and he touches his lips so that he can begin to be speaking truly with his life, with his witness. That's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Over the charcoal of a breakfast, he's taking these coals of truth and touching Jesus with the touching Peter with the reality of who Jesus is and who Peter is. He's restoring him. One of the things that you notice in the text is that Peter, he's getting something very right here. Rather than just declaring, I'm with you and I will never leave you, I'm the loyal disciple, no matter who else. 
What he's saying is he's rerouting every single time he responds to the Lord. He's saying, Lord, you know. You know. I think that is one of the fundamental tests of our life and one of the fundamental transitions of our life is to go from how we know ourselves to be to knowing ourselves in the way that he knows us to be. And so as Jesus works with Peter, he's restoring him to himself, but he's restoring him to himself so that he can root himself in how Jesus sees him, which is the true way. Jesus made him, knitted him together in his mother's womb. And Peter begins to be able to realize that he could say, I am the way that you, Lord, say that I am. It's a threefold confession, too. I think that's significant. I think it's partly, you know, we're, we're going beneath the masks of, of, of Peter's self-construction and his self-improvement projects. We're going beneath all of that. And then it's also, I think, however, it's threefold because it's that intense. You think about how the, the angels have, have understood Jesus in the holy presence of God. Holy, holy, holy Lord. It's a threefold confession. The three is a big number in, in the Bible. It's like after three comes something new. After three comes a divine expression. On the third day, Jesus rises from the dead. On the third day, he's transfigured before the disciples, which is what Peter saw. That's probably why he says, I want you to pay attention until that morning star rises in your heart. On the third day, and then things begin to happen. At the threefold confession and restoration of, Jesus, of Peter, he becomes once again the Peter who can be the rock. In some ways, um, I think I've said this before, what, what we have here is a reconciliation, a forgiveness of sins, but it's to recommission Peter too, to give him again a new charge. The synoptics call this um, that Jesus was saying to Peter, you will fall away, but then you'll be restored, and then you will strengthen your brothers. And in fact, this is exactly what Jesus is launching right now. So we can put it in the context of our service every single week. Every single week, you're given a word. Hopefully, you're encountering Jesus right away, right from the beginning of the service. But he's provided it, right? The meal has been prepared. He's prepared it through his body and blood. He's spoken the words that the Spirit has caused the church to remember, and you're hearing those real words. I hope that you're hearing them for you, spoken directly to you. And then you are communed with him and restored in the clothing of who you really are, related to him, not related to your own thoughts about anything else. And then what happens at the end is that we're dismissed. It means to be sent out. Dismissal means to be sent out on mission, missio, mission, dismissal. So in the truth of who Peter is, now actually he can be relaunched back into the real mission that he's meant to have. I think it's interesting that for Peter, the one who once boasted that he would follow him and, Peter, and Jesus has said, you won't be able to right now, but you will later. That later is going to come soon. He'll be one of the earliest disciples to follow Jesus. Jesus says, you'll be stretched out like himself. You'll be stretched out in a sacrificial witness. You're no longer a slave. I mean, you're no longer subject to the slave girl who seems so threatening that she might expose you. No longer subject even to those authorities who have the power to kill you. 
And the reason for that is because he's clothed in Jesus. Peter's existential crisis is overcome, and he really does become the rock. That is, of course, completed in the power of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in a, in a really confirmatory, powerful way. I want to just bring it home a little bit. I, I think um, one of the ways that I have kind of understood this whole process that, Je that Jesus takes Peter through um, came to me most personally when I was going through my own existential crisis. And my existential crisis, as you might guess, would have to do with, like, am I, am I really doing what God has called me to do? Am I, am I ha having any effect, you know, as a pastor or a priest? And I was in the middle of that and actually operating under some lies about ministry, lies about myself. And um, I was with a bunch of friends up in Canada, and there was um, a pastor psychologist there who has a gift of healing prayer. His name is Kenneth Smiley. I think it's a perfect name for this guy because um, he's a beautiful smile and uh, he imparts a kind of a strength when he ministers to you. So I was just telling him about my crisis at the moment. I won't go into all the details, but just some things that I were hearing, they're kind of resonating and making me to, and some, somehow I was giving into these lies about myself. And I'm telling him these lies and I could tell you like just two of the lies that, that, seemed to, that seemed to be showing their ugly head especially that was misshaping my life and reducing it down. You know, one was that there's never enough. It's just not enough. And the other was no one will be with me in that. And as we were praying in the presence of the Lord, I started to have a sense that what the Lord was saying to me is, I am enough. My grace is enough for you. And I started to have a picture of him saying it to me with tenderness, but power. Same way P Jesus is talking to Peter. He's saying, I'm enough. And he's also saying to me, I'm with you. I'm already here. I will never leave you alone. And so the interesting thing that Dr. Smiley had me do, or uh, Ken had me do, is he said, I, I think you should just confess that. You are enough, Lord. You are with me. And say, so, how, do, how does that feel? Does that feel different? I said, huh, yeah, that, that actually feels a little different. He said, okay, well, give thanks to the Lord, but I actually want you to say it again. You are enough. You are with me, Lord. How, how does that feel? Oh, I feel even better. I'm feeling some, some strength, some, some surgency of being. Wow, that's great. Thank you, Jesus. Why don't you say it one more time? You are enough, Lord. You are with me. I mean, just, I'm just flooded with joy. Just flooded with a restored sense that, like, you know, I'm in, my life is difficult sometimes. It can be really hard, and everybody's is. In one way, shape, or form, but... He is enough, and he's with me. And that reality, I just felt clothed in a kind of strengthening glory that just sent me back into hope in ministry and confidence in ministry. I, I, I think that, you know, what, what's happening, we've been talking a little bit about Peter being restored to his true vocation, but you see how Jesus is doing it. He's evoking it out of him, and I mean quite literally, he's having him voice it out loud. He's had him voice his confession, and he's had him voice the truth of who he is. 
He's voicing it. That's powerful. I don't know exactly why, but when we proclaim the truth, when we say the truth, within the scope of our own human existence, he's actually restoring the real authority that we're meant to have in life, the real glory that we're meant to shine in life by vocalizing truth, speaking the truth. He's changing everything about Peter back to true center. His thoughts are now true. His words are now true. And his deeds will be true. And they will manifest powerfully as a good shepherd. I think it's an incredible gift to have this kind of a restoration, this liberating power of who we really are, meant to be witnesses to Jesus, meant to have real authority. In some way, um, I think what's happening here for Peter is that the only thing that matters now is that he's related to Jesus. The only thing that matters is that he's rooted in the truth of who Jesus is and the truth of who Jesus says he is. Nothing else matters. And if the world comes against Peter, Peter's still going to be Peter. If his thoughts start to get confused again a little bit, he's still going to be Peter. There's a couple of instances where his thoughts did get confused and he had to be reminded by Paul. Who are you really? He would be Peter. I almost feel like with Peter at this point, he's going to tell the truth no matter what. And if the world goes down, he will go down with it. It doesn't matter. He's going to tell the truth. He's going to live in the truth, think the truth, feel the truth, speak the truth, and do the truth. And a true witness happens because of it. It's glory. Jesus dismisses him into the world to shine his glory, to be a real candle of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that in each and every one of us for the ways that we have drunk lies that have undone us, that we've somehow confessed ways in which we are no longer yours. If we've undone ourselves, Lord, by living out of untruths, Lord, I pray that this morning that you would speak your truths. I pray that you would do a threefold restoration of each of our hearts. I pray that you would evoke out of us our true vocation, that we could actually become and say and do the truth of who we are in your light. Not our own light, not the light of the world, but in your light. Lord, you are good. You're a good shepherd. You know just how to lead us to real food and drink and real words that build. And I pray that today your church would be built and that she would fan out into all the places where people need to hear the truth of the good news. Pray that you would make us courageous, fierce, firm, enduring witnesses to you, like Peter, like John. I pray this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.